but he could give me the um and he took me about repentance. Unless you repent. Oh, so that, is, that would be considered being Yeah, the, and repentance is accepted. I mean, I mean, unless you repent. They're talking about whether someone commits adultery, doesn't repent, and dies. By definition, can, are they going to go to hell forever or not? That's the argument. The Mu'tazza argued that they would. While the, the, the other schools said, not necessarily. Yeah. If, if this... Um, so it, it seems to be addressed to people in particular, not in fact to Umar. How did the Mu'tazila, like, how did they then extrapolate that to mean society as opposed to individual? It, it's supposed, it, it seems to be addressed to what? It, it seems to be addressed to individuals, like, not, not to Umar, but just to, like, individuals. No, it's addressed to both, because it says, Inna al-insana, human beings. It's like the humankind. So it could be addressed to individuals, it could be addressed to societies, it could be addressed to communities. Because once you've generalized it to, to an insan, humans, then you know you, you cover all types of things uh, within the, the purview of, of that term. It even could be addressed to families. I mean, I haven't ever read it put that way, but it's, I guess it's, it's possible that that would... What they, of course, what they, what Shafi meant was that in seeking the truth, that you realize that there are people who are in a state of khus. Khus not means that they're dead. It just means that by the very nature they're constantly losing. And that these are not the, you might try to get them out of the state of course, but these are not the people that you are going to go and do tawasi over haq with. You know, it's like, um, it's like if you go to someone who is in a state of course, let's say that someone, their, their form of course is that they're extremely panicky. You know, every time something happens to them, they're, oh my God, oh my God, and so on and so forth. And, and then you go and you try to talk with them about, not, not talk with them about the value of patience. It's impossible that you're going to actually develop each other's sense of patience. What's going to happen is that they're going to transform you into a very anxious, anxiety-ridden person. And experience, you know, verifies that all the time, that you, you go off into to a panicky individual and before you know it, you're starting to panic yourself. But if you go to a person who understands faith and understands the value of, of, of not panicking and, and trusting God, and then it's a different dynamic because then you're actually adding to each other. You're, 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 you're developing each other's sense of trust in God. That's what, that's what the Shafi meant, that you don't rush off to those who are in a state of khus and convince yourself, well, you know, I... Unless you're going to just give them advice, but not, not, uh, uh, not interact give in a state of give and take from them. 
Now, of course, the Shafi was uh, Shafi was extremely concerned with uh, uh, in his age the Emirates were in power, and the Emirates were not very an Islamic bunch. In fact, they were they were quite plagued by corruption. And the whole idea is, do you go to and and so there was a pious culture within the early within the early Islamic dynasty or civilization in the Emirate era. Do you uh, and uh, do you um, uh, engage that culture in the search for the vision of a true Islamic life? And what I mean by that is. Take someone like Ibn al-Muqaffa. Ibn al-Muqaffa during the Amorite period would write things about the Islamic state. The problem is Ibn al-Muqaffa himself was not pious or, or Islamically oriented at all. So then the question is, now, do you go to Ibn al-Muqaffa and discourse with him about the, the nature of an Islamic state? Or do you ignore Ibn al-Muqaffa because he's in a state of ruin and go talk to Abu Hanifa instead? That's what Shafi was worried about. It was fashionable in his day among the young people, the youth, to because of course the Amorites are in power and they're fairly secular, and to go and sort of seek out the hip people who were not particularly religious at all. <coughs> who were fascinated by Greek philosophy and fascinated by Persian culture and Persian fashion and fad and things like that. Remember the Islamic civilization, I mean, there's mushrooms very quickly, and they were fascinated, even we have reports fascinated by the Greek sense of beauty and aesthetics, constantly seeking after things like uh, Greek sculpture. Uh, with all its nudity and, and, and so on and so forth. And Chavez was very much concerned about the tendency of the youth to think it's hip and happening, to go and discuss with these intellectualized, if you will, and with these secularists in our terms today, uh, of course he would call them the Torah, but I mean, they weren't Torah, they were just secularists. Uh, about truth and what's right and what's wrong and he was saying no look it is those who have iman and those who have aman and those who th- these are the two prerequisites and then you have tawasib al-haq so tawasib al-haq be with them because they have iman and aman this, this is the argument now of course in nowadays we have something very similar I mean if I want to a discourse about the nature of haq, who do I pick? Someone is in state, and so Shafi wanted to do it like a test. You ask yourself, is this group in a state of khus or not khus? And then if the answer is yes, they're in a state of khus, then no tawasib al-haq. But if they are not in a state of khus, then you go do tawasib al-haq with them, and tawasib al-haq, because now that you're going to start searching, you need to be patient. And of course he wanted to be patient, again, why? Because here is Shafi, who is quite complicated, He's, he was opposing the tendency of what he accused the Syrians, al of, of 
declared Islamic law to be X, Y, and Z. Shafi'i wanted a method. Remember, he's the one who basically augmented the, the, the usul al-fiqh, jurisprudence. Now, he, he's actually dealing with people in which, in order to even start talking about sharia, you have to go study something as complex and convoluted as usul al-fiqh. Right? You have to go and study the rules for Allah, study the rules for Qiyas, and, uh, which is at the heart of Qiyas and Ijman, all the discourses of Shafi'i. And the youth at his time were gravitating towards a much easier, much easier solutions. These are offered by lesser, less complicated Islamic legal schools or um, uh, offered by the fashions of the Persians and the, the fashions and the culture uh, of the Greek, particularly these two, two groups. Um, Shafi'i, part of his polemics is to convince people, yes, what I do is rather complicated and it doesn't give you easy answers, because also Shafi'i, when he, when he was in, uh, in Medina, he gave a whole set of answers to, to certain problems, and when he went to Egypt, he changed a lot of his positions. And he says, yes, my method doesn't give you clear-cut black-and-white answers, and it gives you methodology, and yes, it take, it, it's difficult, but, but you must be patient in order to learn. That's, that's, I mean, this is just the background of why Shafi emphasized that aspect. Now, of course, after that, it became an earmark of Sharia training, this, this notion of be patient until you learn. Uh, because Shafi accused, for example, the Hanafis, which, in error, in my view, but accused the Hanafis of being too simple-minded and that they give you black-and-white, clear-cut answers to everything without really proper methodology for investigation and so on. The critics of Shafi said you're very convoluted. It takes you forever to reach a conclusion or anything about... But what is remarkable about Surah Al-As is the impact that it had. I mean, look, it affected the Shiites, it affected the Mu'tazila, it affected the development of Islamic jurisprudence, and the whole notion of discourses about the truth and discourses about the trials and tribulations of seeking out the truth. That's what, what is what is remarkable about us, and even us, as we're growing up, and perhaps we know none of this, but you see a rather close affinity to Al-Asr, to, to Surah Al-Asr. In other words, for some reason it just sounds very special. And I think every Muslim who's memorized the surah can testify to this. For, you know, it, it sounds very special. Even if you don't know it's the role it played in history or any of the discourses or any arguments about it or whatever. For some reason, you would like to recite it in prayer and it sounds as if it's saying something deep. Although when you think about it, it sounds like it's saying something... Okay, fine, so it means people are bad unless they're being good. But you have a sense like, no, no, it's saying more than that. And it, in fact, it does. It, it, it creates, not only it creates, it, it, it sparks up a whole discourse. And you don't know where the discourse is going to end. I, I think Al-Asr is limitless. I mean, if you take the principle, then you could, you could take the principle through uh, in, in many contexts and situations. I mean, 
you could even uh, you could even have a spot right atop that hanger on its wall. You know, instead of cooking you know, you've got to be patient until you work hard and develop your muscles, that type of thing. Uh, uh, because the, the whole notion is the, the, the natural progression, the natural progression towards ruin and disintegration. Unless, unless steps are taken to prevent and alter that. Now, Ibn Khaldun, of course, coming hundreds of years after Shabbi, said, yeah, but what you do actually is you stun the rate of deterioration, but you can never beat the deterioration, except on the individual level, because Ibn Khaldun is willing to accept the notion that a human being may actually escape the process of khusr completely, but not at a social level. Social society cannot forever. It might be able to escape the, 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 uh, uh, the state of khusr for a long time, perhaps even a very long time, but ultimately the khusr will come and like time just eat away at it and, 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 and drag it to ruin. Uh, and then you have to start the whole process again. And this is the whole notion of cyclical history for Ibn Khaldun is so fundamentally tied to this notion, to this idea. Fascinating. I mean, it's a whole, um, it's a whole fascinating thing. Yeah, ultimately, eventually. Eventually, it will go through. It's you know the the, the ascend, the zenith, and then the descent, and then the the rock bottom. Uh, but the difference is, is that not every descent is followed by an ascent. Sometimes you descend and then you just disappear. I mean, the Aztec civilization, for example, American Indians. I mean, they're gone. The the chances that they'll ever come back again is very, very, very slim, to say the least. And the Islamic civilization could very well be one of these. I mean, we are now reached rock bottom, in my view. We've descended, 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 now reached. Now, whether we're ever going to come back again, yet remains to be seen, but it is not out of the realm of possibility that we don't, that this would be Basically, the death of the Islamic civilization doesn't mean the death of the Islamic religion, but the death of the Islamic civilization. In other words, we would remain in a state room. And if the hadith that talk about the best age being the time of the Prophet, and then it was a downward spiral from there, is to be believed, and that, you know, uh, every age is followed by worse age, worse, 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 is to be believed then, then in fact there is some realization that is never coming back and that's it. You know, Muslims sort of just... Uh, and then the whole only question is whether there is a Mahdi who is going to come and like, save the day or not. But I'm very skeptical about these hadiths because they're, t- they're political hadiths. I mean, they're, they're really very politically oriented and, and they just reek of... of... Uh, 
the type of pessimism that you find in all traditions about, you know, everything is lost and it's just from now on it's always, you know, where are the go old good days and this type of stuff. And anyway, I mean, what's the point of a religion that achieves its height in about 20 years and then after that it's just all downwards? Um, it's not exactly, I mean, it's, it's like one of these bizarre flowers that, you know, sits there and the station for a month and then appears for one minute and then dies. You know, it's beautiful, but it's quite pointless. Um, unless you happen to be there for that one minute to see it. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem to me to make any sense. But anyway, the, whether Surah Al-Asr then makes the enjoining the good and forbidding the evil, Precondition as fundamental as Iman and Amal Salihat as belief and doing good deeds. Well, Asr is supposed to be read like this. Well, Asr, Inna al-Insana lafi khusr illa al-lazina amanu wa amal salihat wa tawasaw bil-haq wa tawasaw bil-sabir. It's one of the one of the readings, um, and so. But this reading has been criticized by so many. But if you if you run into someone reading it this way, technically they're correct. I mean, yeah. Because uh, it's. Alsaya. Uh, not not Alsaya. Not not the Fasir Star. It's by Kasr. Kasr Sad. Which is, I mean, I've heard it pronounced, and it sounds frankly Palestinian. What we today, what we call, like it sounds, but. So I don't know if the if uh, the fellow Sheikh Antar in Egypt who reads all the different Quran, that's where I heard it, and it sounded to me like the, the way Palestinians pronounce certain words like well, or not, but I don't know some some words they you find the the there's a kes emphasis in it, so it sounded Palestinian to me. Yeah. Whether that would become then one asir or one asir, I don't know. Okay. Uh, the other thing is, there is a, a report that an Imam Ali <coughs> and an um, Imam Ali and. Um, Uh, Ibn Mas'ud had a different reading of this of this surah and it is that Waldah instead of Walasr. Now Waldah here the age becomes quite specific. No actually I'm wrong, it is not Waldah. It was the reading said 
والعصر ونوائب الظهر إن الإنسان لفي خصر والعصر ونوائب الظهر ونوائب الظهر means and the calamities of the age so say by the age and the calamities of times sorry ظهر is time by the age and the calamities of time human beings are in a state of ruin of course in the meaning meaning was it doesn't really make that much of a difference but uh, and it's a report from Ali and a report from Ibn Mas'ud nonetheless again as you've noticed I'm extremely skeptical of these ultra reports because of their ahadi nature once again Exactly. So it's not that they know, we know for certain that they necessarily Exactly. It's actually, we don't even know for certain. I mean, the reports that say that Ibn Mas'ud read it this way are stronger than the ones that... It's not that they're effective reports, authentic. That's a, that's a problem. It's sahih. But they're ahad. Now, for an Ahl hadith person, then hadith ahad. You have to still accept it. But for usuli, you're extremely skeptical of a Hadi report. And from my perspective, I don't understand how could a Hadi report be accepted in giving you a variation on the Quran. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me that we be willing to deal with the Quran so uh, uh, casually as to accept a Hadi reports to give us variance. Because if, if we want to stick to that, if in prayer I say, then if, if you are a believer in ahadi transmissions like Ahl Hadith, then that should be correct. And no one should correct it. No, because they, they're always inconsistent about everything. I mean, if someone said, everyone would yell and correct them, and then say, but this is one of the readings, say, no, that's kuf. But you accept ahadi hadith, then how could you say that's kuf? I mean, nothing that from today's Ahl al-Hadith people, I'm not talking about the old ones, is consistent or even makes sense. I mean, basically, whatever one feels like saying at, uh, at, um, at the time. Okay, that's it. So, is there any uh, uh, interpretation other than looking at the, uh, the time through the ages is man always sort of going towards the loss in, in, a, in, a, in a progressive way? No, because everything, like the ones who said that it's referring to the, to, to the time of the Prophet, okay, they say, okay, so it's contrasting the, the how in the time of the Prophet people were not in a state of khus and then every other time they were in a state of khus. That's, but it's still the same idea. Yeah, oh, the prayer, the prayer. Yeah, exactly. The, at the time of those who said, like, it's referring to the time of us, that look at how human beings are engaged in the affairs of this world. They are in a state of ruin and loss when they are doing so, or as they're doing so, except those who believe and do these good deeds and so on and so on and so forth. But again, you had to you have to, uh, uh, the, 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 again, it, it's 
still invokes the idea that human beings have this natural tendency to become distracted from the, the what it's all about the initial point and the initial purpose and to lose sight even in the uh, even in the uh, the, the Asr prayer itself well in the Asr prayer it, according to that view it is swearing by the Asr prayer because it is the best prayer why is it the best prayer? because it's the most difficult prayer then you'll get into the same thing again I've read, but I, I think that people argue that the day actually starts with Maghrib. That the day that doesn't actually start. No, I think I think the, the day actually starts with Fajr. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, I know. The, I mean, the, there's. Uh, there are all funky types of funky things going on in today's Islam. Are you? I mean, I ask. I consider the, the beginning of the day to be fashion. No, not not in the not in the master you mean Salta Tarawih in the, the day before fasting starts? Yeah, that's because of the the what people think is a Hanafi school is, but it's not Hanafi actually at all. That the day begins after Maghrib. So then you pray Tarawih because this that night is the first night of Ramadan, really. But not if you don't if you don't if you consider the day I don't pray Tarawih the night before. Uh, and Tarawih continues basically the the last day which I mean the night of the Eid. The night of I mean you're going to wake up now and pray Eid. I still pray Tarawih. I still I still consider we still in Ramadan. That, yeah, that 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 used to be the, the before the contemporary it used to be in the majority position, and then the, the Wahhabi, the particularly the Wahhabi school, focused very much or insisted very much on you no know, the notion that the day starts and ends with Maghrib, and that became popularized. That became the the establishment. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned that they were saying that if your actions and beliefs are not consistent, then you don't believe them. This belief works with respect to the Islamic law. In accepting uh, witnesses, uh, um, in, in the, for example, in accepting adala, the definition of adala, sometimes 
the, the, uh, I mean, it permeates so many different things. I'm trying to think of the, of the most clear example I can give you. I tell you, like for example, someone takes a shahada, okay, and then this person now takes a shahada, and you know that in a court, a person who is who is Muslim is presumed to be of just character to testify in a case unless otherwise. So the case used to be uh, to arise often where someone took the shahada but did not pray, continues to drink alcohol, you know, in, or, or sometimes even took the shahada but continues to go to church to pray. Okay? So do you believe the fact that they took the shahada or the fact that they continue to go to church to pray? And jurors said, no, if their actions are inconsistent with their belief, then their actions are to, are to be believed. So, from a technical point of view, in war you can't kill them if they took the shahada. Why? Because they, it's not because they're Muslim. It's because the, there is a likelihood they're Muslim. But as a matter of law, whether they get treated as Muslim, as Muslim or not, like whether they, they pay the jizya anymore, there was there was actually an inquiry into what their whether their behavior is consistent with what they say they believe or not. A situation that in which um, uh, this also comes up in the issue of repentance. If you are a highway robber, if you come and you turn yourself in because it says in in Ladina uh, 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 what is uh, this? جزاؤهم أن تقطع أيديهم أرجلهم من خلاف لا أن يقتلوا ويصلبوا وتقطع أيديهم أرجلهم من خلاف وينفى في الأرض إلا الذين تابوا من قبل أن تقدروا عليهم except those who repent before you capture them okay. so now someone comes, comes to you before you capture them and say I repent, but you, although saying I repent orally, but you look at their behavior and they continue to, to drink alcohol and spend the nights uh, in, in partying and merriment and alcohol consumption and stuff like that. Here, then you don't accept their repentance. That's another example where, where legally it looks different. Or, for example, in the case of um, in the case of uh, prostitutes, prostitutes in, in not all the schools, but in good number of, of opinions of a good number of jurors say that in case of prostitutes, uh, if they claim to have repented, they should not be executed and should be given. It means to living. In other words, given a, a uh, means welfare in a sense, and then and then they argue whether it should be for a year or indefinite or six months or whatever. And then if they return to it to prostitution, then you execute them. But how about someone a prostitute that comes says, "I've repented." But you have reports that uh, she continues to, 
to to visit the uh, the, uh, uh, the tents with the red flags. Tents with red flags. These were prostitution houses. That the, these tents the, the, would hang red flags, declaring that these are prostitution areas. Um, and you and several people testified that we've seen her. She's constantly going there every night. Do you still give her the welfare? Do you still issue her the 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 man, the money from Beitel Man? Or do you say, you know, you, you haven't repented, we don't believe you. Uh, and suspend payment. Uh, another case, a woman comes and says, I have been raped by X. Because, you see, here there are two, two things. One is the criminal punishment, but the other is compensation for the woman from the state, because the state failed to protect the woman from rape, then the, the state has to pay the woman compensation, has to compensate. And this is this is the ruling of Omar. So what if the woman comes and says, I was raped? Okay. And then, but you have evidence that she continues to visit with and socialize with the man that she says raped her. Does the state still obligated to compensate or pay? In fact, no. Here the actions contradicted the words. That well, if if you why you why are you socializing with him then? Um, or she or we have evidence we that she is continue, continuing to correspond with him. I mean, she will not be heard, and there, there are actually a lot of responses like that. She will not be heard to say, but I can't get over him, you know. Then it's like she says, this, this is an actual case in which a woman was engaged to someone, and then she came and said, he raped me. And then, for a variety of reasons, there was shubhas, and he was, he, he was not executed. But he was flogged. And then she was paid compensation. But she continued to uh, write him and to to see him and so on. And then the the issue is whether or not she should be forced to return the compensation to Beit Mad to the state or not. Because if you if he raped you, then probably you should not be uh, 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 corresponding with him. And she's a, her claim was, but I'm so madly in love with him that I can't help myself. Then, you know, you have a serious problem in what you actually believe. Yeah, that, that's actually not more than that. That in the case of negligence, some, some of the schools went as far as saying that a, a mujtahid that is negligent, or a qadi, the qadi that is negligent is to be imprisoned. Now, they also they, they discuss about the mujtahid who is negligent. So mujtahid, I mean, they take a very stupid case. Let's say mujtahid, you go ask mujtahid, say, uh, is there a, pray, a sunnah prayer after asr? And he said, yes, without any evidence or whatever. Now, you all know that a proper mujtahid would know that there is no sunnah prayer for us, unless they produce evidence. Then in that case, some have argued, well, you just 
say take the ijazas away. But late, later on, like post sixth century particularly, they found that taking the ijazas is not an effective way to dealing with it because it's not exactly like they, they, they frame their ijazas and put them on the wall like they do with doctors and lawyers nowadays. People still believe they have the ijazas. I mean, it's like, uh, okay, you took it from them, but the, the, rep, the general reputation is they have their ijazas. So then the, the law changed distinctly to be like judges, and that they be imprisoned. While doctors who are negligent are to be fined to compensate their victims, uh, jurists who are negligent were, were thrown into prison. And it, this was, this was, um, you had some really funny cases in the villages of Syria and Egypt and Palestine. Because you know the villages, you can go and say anything. So what, some of the there's a book called Ajaib um, al-Fatwa um, wa Gharaib something, which is a collection of the fatwas that resulted in imprisonment for the people who issued the fatwas. <laughs> and then you have the funniest fatwas in the world, like. Um, a lot of times, like, uh, uh, questions about uh, marrying jinn, like there's a, one of them is a guy, one guy was married to four wives, and then he asked the mufti whether he may, uh, let me talk to you about it, like, if it's, uh, whether, ah, that he, I told the mufti that one of my wives is now married to jinn. So, Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to put it in my case or not. Huh? No, no, I'm not going to two cases. One case is like he said, okay, I want to marry, I have four wives. Can I marry this, which is gin? Okay? But this gin has human form. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, a, it's a woman who's jinn, but she has human form. And the the mufti said yes because she's jinn. So that she doesn't count as one of the you know doesn't count as the limit. Then we one fatwa. This guy served served time. Uh, then there was another one who said, my wife is married to a jinn. What is it that he, what is it that he wants to do with her? I remember, she, she married to Jim, she cheated with Jim. Oh, he, um, yeah, he's actually, yeah. And so he went to a mortgage and he said, okay, my wife is, is cheating on me with a Jim. She's in love with a jinn, and she's like married to a jinn. And now that my wife is married to this jinn, doesn't this automatically null my, my marriage? And if it automatically nulls the marriage, null and void my marriage to her, then I don't owe her support or sabaka or anything, right? 
לא, the mufti said, well, yeah, she went to jail, and your contract with her is voided, and because it's voided, you don't owe her anything, and and that's that. So that guy's self-taught as well. Really funny.